Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 11th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardow. I'm very happy to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. On today's show, first Benjamin Schatz of Manat, Phelps, and Phillips Appellate Practice Group will visit to discuss this Monday's state high court ruling in Moss for Superior Court which, by clarifying a section of the Code of Civil Procedure, ensures a habeas corpus petitioner the right to peremptorily disqualify an assigned judge should the petitioner believe the judge to be prejudiced as to the matter. Here, the petitioner, Michael Eugene Moss, challenged a 25-year-to-life sentence based on ineffective assistance of counsel claims. While his petition was pending in a California Superior Court, Moss inquired repeatedly as to the identity of the judge assigned to decide whether the petition stated a prima facie habeas claim. But Moss only discovered the judge's identity, Judge John M. Thompson of the San Diego Superior Court, when Moss learned that Johnson had summarily denied his petition. Appealing the denial, Moss contended he would have used a peremptory challenge under California Code of Civil Procedure 170.6 to disqualify Johnson and that the court's failure to notice him of Johnson's identity prior to the summary denial was improper. An appellate panel agreed with him, but then in an uncommon procedural twist, the California Supreme Court, on its own motion, absent an appeal from either side, decided to review the Court of Appeals ruling. While traditional wisdom suggests the high court must have been more likely than not disapproving of the intermediate court's holding, in fact, the court rendered an affirmance Monday clarifying that Section 170.6 indeed entitles individuals the right to know the identity of the judges deciding their habeas petitions, and the right to, at least once, disqualify them for prejudice. Mr. Schatz discusses how this impacts both habeas corpus jurisprudence, but also appellate attorneys more generally, who should be mindful, power reserved by the California Supreme Court to grant sua sponte review of seemingly settled appeals. Then we hear an encore presentation of appellate practice wisdom from Morgan Lewis and Bacchius partner, David Balabanian. Mr. Balabanian's opinion columns appear regularly in the Daily Journal and regard all manner of appellate best practices, and this segment will focus on brief writing. He'll describe some common pitfalls encountered by appellate attorneys in this context and the best ways to include both helpful and unhelpful precedent in your brief. But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this program. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And with that, let's move to my conversation now with Benjamin Schatz of Manat, Phelps, and Phillips. We're happy to welcome into the show now Benjamin Schatz, uh, partner and appellate specialist with Manat, Phelps, and Phillips. Mr. Schatz, welcome to the program. Thank you. The case we're, we're chatting about here, Moss first, the Superior Court of San Diego County, ruling out of the California Supreme Court on Monday regards a particular section of the Code of Civil Procedure 170.6 and whether individuals can avail themselves of that section in, in habeas corpus actions, in the earliest stages specifically of those actions. So maybe first could we set up what exactly the section is, 170.6, and what it uh, provides for? Sure. Well, CCP 170.6 is one of those statutes that I think most California litigators uh, learn early uh, and by number, uh, and can, can always spit that one out. Uh, it's also known as bouncing a judge or papering a judge, and it relates to the peremptory challenge of a judge. What it does is it allows a litigant to disqualify the superior court judge, commissioner, or referee who will try or hear a matter 
in a civil action, a criminal action, or a special proceeding. And all that's required is a sworn affidavit asserting prejudice. And if that's filed, disqualification of the judge is mandatory and automatic, uh, and there's no need to actually prove anything. Uh, it has to be done promptly, uh, usually within 10 days after you know who your judge is. And so it's a very powerful procedural tool. Uh, because it's so powerful, you only get to use it once, uh, basically, but you can also um, do it after there's been a reversal on appeal, if that's something that happens. Uh, the Supreme Court in the, in the Moss case, as, as we're going to discuss, has found it to be a substantial and important part of California due process and liberally construes it. Uh, there is, of course, no comparable procedure in federal court or in the state court of appeal, where you're pretty much stuck with the judges you get. As we'll, we'll get into more in just a second, there, there are two stages of a, of a habeas corpus action that are particularly focused on here. The earliest is when an individual will file his petition for writ of habeas corpus. And then the potential second stage, which may or may not happen, is um, if the judge gives it an order to show cause as to maybe why a writ should issue or if he in fact issues that that writ. Can you tell me a bit about both of these two stages and, and what a judge is looking for in, in one as compared to the other? Sure. So a habeas proceeding has, has two steps. First, the petition for writ of habeas corpus is filed. And this is just a verified writ petition stating that someone, the petitioner, is being unlawfully held, uh, and the petition then sets forth, uh, sets forth a basis for that claim. Uh, habeas corpus is uh, uh, Latin for you have the body, or more technically, you shall produce the body, meaning the prisoner shall be brought to court, uh, and the writ itself directs the custodian uh, over someone, a prisoner, to show cause why detention is uh, lawful. So the trial court examines the petition to see if it states a prima facie case for relief. In other words, assuming that the allegations in the petition are true. Uh, and uh, the court also checks for procedural compliance. Uh, and if the petition fails to state a prima facie case, or the claims are, are procedurally barred for some reason, then the petition is summarily denied. Uh, and that is the fate of most writs, uh, not just habeas corpus petitions. But if a prima facie case exists, uh, and there is no procedural bar or defect, then the court issues the writ of habeas corpus, uh, majestically called uh, by legal historians the great writ, uh, but uh, more often called by practitioners the great unobtainable writ. Uh, so the, the, the writ of habeas corpus issues, or, or an OSC, basically the same thing. Uh, and what this does is it doesn't grant the relief that sought. Instead, it converts the proceeding into a cause uh, that then allows and requires the state to file a written return responding to the petition and explaining the justification for the petitioner's confinement. And this uh, return then becomes the principal pleading in the proceeding, uh, so that in contrast to the petition, that was just the document that launched the judicial inquiry into the merits, and it's the second phase uh, where the merits are reviewed. 
starting from the beginning here with the petitioner's action. So in the, the first stage, Michael Eugene Massey petitioned for a writ of habeas corpus. He had been convicted in, in 1998 on a term of 25 years to life, I believe actually uh, on two terms of, of 25 years to life. And he brings his petition 15 years later, I'm claiming an ineffective assistance of counsel at one of those those trials that resulted in one of those convictions. Um, and as many habeas corpus petitions meet with uh, summary dismissals, likewise so did his. Um, could you tell me why uh, his particular petition was denied here? Well, the judge concluded that all of his claims were procedurally defective. Uh, specifically, his, his claims were procedurally barred because he had unjustifiably delayed in challenging the three-strike sentences, uh, and he didn't show good cause for revisiting the arguments that he had already lost on appeal. You know, habeas petitions are sought after you've exhausted uh, your uh, right to appeal. Uh, now, as will become important in his appeal, obviously we're talking about Section 170.6, um, the right to peremptorily sort of knock out a judge from a proceeding. So I believe in the, the weeks when his petition was pending, the petitioner here was seeking to, to find out the identity of the judge who would review it, but to no avail, right, that he, was, he did not learn the identity of that judge. Right, that this is the whole key to the case. So, so Moss files this habeas, habeas corpus petition in San Diego County Superior Court, uh, and presumably when it's filed, it gets assigned to a specific judge, uh, but he doesn't know which judge it's been sent to. Uh, it could have been sent to the judge who presided over the trial where he was originally convicted 15 years before, uh, because that judge was still on the bench. Uh, it could not have been assigned to the judge who presided over his later burglary and forgery conviction. Uh, the first one was Grand Theft Auto, and then the second convictions were burglary and forgery. That judge had retired. Um, but in any event, he didn't know where it went, where, which judge had the petition. So about a week after he files it, he asks the, the court clerk to please tell him who, who's got the petition, what judge. Uh, and he gets back a conformed copy of the petition cover page, um, but that didn't name the judge. So a week later, he, he writes again to the clerk to find out who his judge is. Uh, and this time, what he gets back is the summary, summary denial. And that was the first time that he found out who his judge is. So he never had a chance to bounce that judge. And that forms the basis of this appeal to the, the Court of Appeals. And could, could you describe exactly what, what relief that he, he sought with um, the appeal of that summary denial? Well, he then files his habeas corpus petition uh, pro per. So it wasn't very clear. Uh, he raised his ineffective assistance claims. Uh, but he didn't really separate, separately spell out his 170.6 argument. He kind of mixed it all up, which is not uncommon with, with proper pleadings. Uh, but he did enough to at least clearly set forth the arguments and the facts relating to the 170.6 issue. And he, he essentially argued in there that if he had been told who the judge was that uh, was hearing his petition, then he would have uh, bounced that judge. Uh, and so the, the Court of Appeal issues an OSC and appoints counsel for him, uh, and then, uh, after argument, uh, issues a five-page published opinion uh, that holds that the habeas petitioner that gets assigned to a judge other than the original trial judge may assert a 170.6 challenge to that judge. 
And in this case, since he didn't have notice of his judge, he obviously never had a chance to bounce that judge. And so the Court of Appeal vacates the summary denial of the habeas petition and remands it back down to a new judge. And this was a novel precedent. This was the first time that a Court of Appeal had held that a habeas petitioner could, could do that. So then the upshot of that ruling is the, the petitioner in that position can find out or has the right to be noticed of the judge's name and, and so um, would then have the, the ability to file a 170.6 motion. That's the new rule that's standing um, after the Court of Appeal's decision, but a somewhat interesting twist occurs next. Obviously, this case comes out of the Cal Supreme Courts, but it, it got there in a fairly interesting manner, namely it the court on its own motion pursuant to, uh, to Rule 8.512C of the California Rules of Court decides to, to hear the case. And as I understand it, it's a fairly uncommon procedure. And in the California Supreme Court receives hundreds of reviews from you know, parties that are seeking you know, their cases to, to be reviewed. But so certainly there are already enough uh, parties that are you know, trying to get their cases reviewed. Why would the, the California Supreme Court take a look at this particular one of its own motion when, when none of the parties in this particular appeal are, are seeking high court review? Right. So this is what makes the case especially interesting, especially to, to appellate lawyers, because it's a scenario of a sua sponte grant of review, uh, which is unanimous. Uh, all seven justices uh, agreed to take this case under Rule 8.512C. Uh, which is the rule that governs review on the court's own motion. It's not a rule that most uh, lawyers uh, necessarily know about, and even uh, most practicing appellate lawyers have uh, little to no experience with it, uh, in part, of course, because it's not something that lawyers uh, can control. It's, it's all about the court. So that rule says that if no petition for review is filed, the Supreme Court can, on its own order, review a court of appeal decision, uh, within 30 days after that decision is final in the Court of Appeal. And the court can also order extensions for itself up to 90 days after finality. Hmm. So if you think about what that means, in theory, the Court of Appeal could issue a decision, and that decision could still be vulnerable for up to 120 days after the decision issues, even with the parties not taking any action. Hmm. Uh, so... For the Supreme Court to reach out like this, deus ex machina, and grab a case uh, is very, very rare. Uh, and at best, this happens you know, maybe once a year. Um, so historically, why would a court do this? Um, and in a 2009 uh, article in the DJ uh, that I published called Seven Ways Up, I talk about some of the circumstances when something like this might happen. Um, one scenario is when a petition for review actually is filed, but it's defective. Uh, so a good petition for review is filed, but it's, it's got some kind of a flaw. For instance, it's late. Um, and an example of that is Hygienic Health Food Company versus Grant back in 1922. Uh, or a petition for review is defective, perhaps because the party who filed it didn't have standing to file it. And an example of that would be Rockridge Place versus City Council of Oakland in 1918. Okay. So, so there's, there's, there's that group of cases where there's a defective petition for review. Uh, then you've got a lot of scenarios where there's no petition for review. Uh, maybe no petition for review was filed because the amount at issue was so small, uh, it just wasn't worth anybody's time or money to bother to keep fighting. 
Uh, and yet the issue was novel and important. Uh, and an example of that would be SCAF versus Small Claims Court in 1968. And the, and the title of the case gives that one away. Um, another situation where there's, is that there could be a case where there's no petition for review file, but the decision is obviously wrong. Uh, it just, it's just it's flagrantly wrong. And, uh, it re- and it requires correction by the Supreme Court to hold the fabric of the law together. Uh, and a, and a, an example of that is Ponce versus Marr uh, in 1956, uh, which w- would be of particular interest to appellate lawyers because it has to do with um, a precedential effect of, of court of appeal decisions when uh, Supreme Court grants review. So a very interesting case, although of historical interest now. Uh, another example could be where there is some kind of serious procedural irregularity, uh, usually involving really bad lawyering that harms a client. Uh, so in 2014, uh, there was a case called Inray LH, which was a juvenile detention matter. And in that case, the retained counsel for the appellant failed to file an opening brief. The appeal was dismissed. Uh, the lawyer, of course, didn't tell the client about any of this. Jurisdiction lapses and is lost, and no PFR is filed. But the client finds out about this and files a motion to reinstate the appeal. Uh, and the Court of Appeal it can't do anything because it's, lack, it's lost jurisdiction. But the Court of Appeal asks the Supreme Court to grant review and transfer the case back to it so that it can resolve it on the merits. Uh, and this is somewhat similar to um, recalling the remitter that, that happens in, in scenarios like that. Uh, and I'd, I'd refer you to a, another 2009 Daily Journal article I wrote called Sex, Lies, and Remitters about a case called In Re Grunau. So, so that's, that's also an example of a case where there's been some kind of influential request. In that instance, the Court of Appeal asked the Supreme Court to take this uh, extraordinary action. Uh, sometimes the Attorney General can make a request like that, and an example is Chicago Title Insurance Company versus Great Western Financial, which was an antitrust case in which the AG wasn't involved, but the AG's office saw the opinion uh, and sent a letter to the Supreme Court urging it to take the case, which it did, and then it affirmed uh, the opinion anyway. Uh, and that case back in 1968. And then finally, there's the situation where there's no petition for review filed, but the case is just really important. And the Supreme Court decides to swoop in and do something. Uh, and uh, some examples of that would be uh, American Motorcycle versus Superior Court in 1978, uh, which is the famous case that set up the law of comparative negligence. Um, or uh, S.G. Borello and Sons versus Department of Industrial Relations in 1989, uh, which affected employer-employee relationships. And there were lots of amicus briefs involved in that one. Um, and in that case, two of the justices, Supreme Court justices, dissented, uh, claiming that review was improvidently granted. Uh, so that's sort of the, the, the setup for scenarios as to when the court might do this. Yeah, I mean, so there's quite a number of different ways that it could that are different contexts where it might be motivated to, to grant this sort of review. Though, like you say, it's not particularly common, but many of the ones you outlined seem to occur in contexts where perhaps something kind of has gone wrong at the lower court, some procedural defects, some grossly inefficient lawyering, some you know, wrong decisions by, by the lower court. So perhaps in the minds of the prevailing party here, the petitioner, 
when the Supreme Court comes in and grants sua sponte this review is the thought that it must just think something went wrong here, that it, it most likely would like to, to change this result? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the assumption of anybody watching this is, is, is that the court, uh, if they care enough to take the, the case, then there must be something wrong uh, and they're going to flip it. Otherwise, uh, the precedent would stand, so why bother? Uh, and when Mouse came out, uh, a lot of bloggers who were following it pre- and saw what had happened predicted that there would be a reversal of, of some sort. Um, the opinion itself expressly notes that it was a sua sponte grant, but it doesn't provide any explanation for why the court did decide to do that. Uh, but there may be some clues in the opinion. Yeah, then we'll go ahead and get into that opinion. It, um, as it, it turns out, instead of reversing the, the California Supreme Court, just affirmed that lower court opinion and confirms the fact that the 170.6 section applies to the stage of habeas corpus proceedings. So unlike what folks expected, uh, affirmance comes. Um, let's walk a bit through the court's reasoning. So um, it takes a look at you know, essentially whether this this particular type of action, the habeas corpus um, action, falls under that section's uh, aegis, uh, in particular this, this stage of the action, the, the filing of the petition and, and the ruling upon it. Why exactly did the, the California Supreme Court end up finding the way it did and determining that this particular action and the stage of it is foreseen by the section and, and covered by it? Right. So we started out by saying that 170.6 applies to civil actions, criminal actions, and special proceedings. Uh, and there is some statutory language that references habeas uh, petitions as a special proceeding of a criminal nature. Uh, and there was some California Supreme Court precedent that seemed uh, to, to, to support that. Um, but there was also some California Supreme Court precedent that seemed to suggest that the habeas corpus petition um, is only a special proceeding after the issuance of the writ or the OSC. So this was a situation where, as the court points out in the opinion, there's some contrary Supreme Court precedent um, strongly suggesting uh, that the petition itself is part of the habeas proceeding, but other case, case law that seems to suggest otherwise. Uh, and so there is this, this conflict in the Supreme Court's own uh, authority. And that may be why the court itself figured it ne- needed to, to resolve that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in doing so, uh, it looks at 170.6 and decides that it's so important that it should be applied liberally and therefore construes the habeas part of the petition as uh, a- applicable to this. Sure. Now, the attorney general argued that um, 170.6 should apply only where a judge is going to try or hear a proceeding, you know, cleaving closely to the specific language in 170.6, and arguing that the initial habeas corpus petition doesn't really require the court to do either of those things, to try or to hear anything. But the Supreme Court rejects that, that narrow reading, and it goes with the, the broader Black's Law Dictionary uh, meaning uh, of, of what the court's doing, which is to uh, examine judicially or simply to decide. And so uh, the Supreme Court says as long as the trial court is resolving some contested issue of law, then it's making a substantive decision on the merits, uh, and that that 
that's what places it within the, the realm of, of 170.6. So then here, the fact that the, the judge will take a look at the petition and, and make a decision as to whether the case will go forward or not. And so he's you know, examining judicially, he's deciding, and so under that uh, slightly more liberal construal of the section, that, that would qualify as, a, as an action. One uh, other portion of the opinion here cites a case called uh, Yokely. The, the California Supreme Court cites that case to, to bolster its its conclusion. What does the what's the proposition in that case, and why does it help the the court of a the court's ruling here? Right. So the Supreme Court affirms and approves of Yokely, which is a 1980 case, and Yokely held that for 170.6 purposes, the the habeas corpus petition is a continuation of the original criminal trial. So if the original trial judge is hearing the habeas petition, then there's no 170.6 right. Uh, you know, that right should have been exercised back at the beginning of the case. But if a new judge is assigned, uh, then the right uh, arises. And, and the Court of Appeal opinion also cited Yokely as well. After dealing with the, the legal arguments and the, and the precedent here, the, the court will get into some of the, the policy arguments advanced by the attorney general in this case. And essentially, they seem to boil down to efficiency arguments and judicial resource arguments, um, you know, arguments saying that there's already a lot of habeas corpus petitions that are filed. They take up a lot of court resources and time and judges' time. And so to now require this additional procedure, you know, certainly allowing petitioners to have the opportunity to peremptorily challenge judges and make sure they're you know, given notice of the identity of those judges will just be a large burden. Um, how does the court respond to those concerns? And in your opinion, how, how genuine are those concerns? How big of a, a burden would this be to ensure 170.6 rights to petitioners at this stage? So, so the Supreme Court acknowledges that there are policy considerations about timeliness, and, and it calls those, those arguments not without some force. So it, so it acknowledges that those are, are good arguments, but it ultimately rejects them. Uh, and it does so for a couple reasons. First, uh, the court points out that habeas petitions already have a time deadline. They have to be ruled on in 90 days. Now, allowing petitioners to bounce the judges certainly injects a little bit of delay, but probably not a lot. And, uh, and even if the timing becomes an issue, the trial court has the power to grant itself extensions for good cause, and so a change of judge uh, presumably would count as good cause. Uh, also, the, the timing rule is for the petitioner's benefit. So if it's the petitioner that chooses to delay his or her own petition by bouncing the judge, well, then that's the petitioner's choice. Uh, it's really, um, you know, every, every extra day the petitioner is stuck in the pokey, uh, that's on him for, for doing this. So uh, the, the, the timing doesn't really concern the Supreme Court that, that much. The AG's office also argues that there's a waste of judicial resources uh, because the court um, needs to figure out if the petition is being assigned to the original trial judge or not, because uh, that makes a difference as to whether or not the 176 can be brought. And, and the court says, you know, this isn't really a big deal. The superior court can inform the petitioners uh, who their judge is and uh, whether uh, 170.6 is available or not, and can do that by including a citation to this opinion. So here we have some insight as to why uh, this Supreme Court opinion uh, was was published. It, it provides guidance to all of the, the Superior Court clerks in explaining 
uh, what it is that their obligation is, which is to let petitioners know who their judges are, and also to uh, alert them to the fact that they're allowed to bounce those judges if it's a new judge. And so uh, this case uh, has advanced the administration of justice by clarifying that and has done so uh, with the, the presidential power of the Supreme Court. Yeah, that, that leads me to essentially my wrap-up question, one last one, on the biggest takeaways of this case. Is it, is it that it's the, the clarification putting a, a finer point on the procedures that attend 170.6 in this particular context? Is there some major takeaway relating to uh, the sua sponte review grant rule, the 8.512C? Well, there are a couple things. So, so first of all, the court here really wants to um, further the administration of justice, and it probably really did not like what happened here with the Superior Court clerk not providing the information to the petitioner. So now the court clerks know uh, that the Supreme Court has ordered them to do that uh, in a very detailed 20-page opinion. Um, Another point to take away is how the Supreme Court uh, grants such importance to 170.6 and construes it liberally. Um, And then there's some more interesting points about simply the fact that the Supreme Court is watching. Staff attorneys at the Supreme Court are tracking cases and keeping track of issues. When something like this comes up, which may not get to the court by a petition for review, the court is not only paying attention, but is willing to jump in and to act on it. So that's a a fine lesson for for everyone to think of. Uh, And then the, the last thing I think that's important for practitioners to know is because this can happen, the sua sponte grant, you have to be very careful about telling your clients after you get a court of appeal opinion that the case is over and you've won and you can pack up and and go away. Um, Because even after finality in the court of appeal, there is this potential for the Supreme Court to take the case. So uh, it's essential to understand how these rules work so that you know when the end is really the end and can let your client know uh, and close out the file uh, and send the final bill and do everything that that you need to do ethically to to end a case uh, and and not disappoint your client's expectations uh, when they think they've won when really they're just entering a a new round of of fighting. Uh, Of course, it's very unusual it doesn't happen a lot, and so you may come off as sounding a little bit hyper-technical by saying, hooray, we've won, but, but bear in mind, we still need to wait this out for a little bit. Um, but, but that's what the litigation, and especially appellate litigation, is all about. It's all the technicalities and all the rules that are out there that don't usually come into play, uh, but that are important to know about nonetheless. Sure. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing wrong with being hypertechnical and appellate jurisprudence, and, and good to know that the, the California Supreme Court is is always watching. That's good to know. Mr. Benjamin Schatz of Manat Phelps and Phillips, I appreciate you joining the podcast to, to chat about this very interesting ruling. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I've appreciated. One more time, that was Benjamin Schatz of Manette, Phelps & Phillips. Next, we'll move to an encore presentation on brief writing best practices with David Balabanian. We're honored now to be joined by David Balabanian, 
a partner at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius in San Francisco, where he handles commercial litigation, including securities, energy, and antitrust cases. And he's held positions with the, the Bar Association of San Francisco and the California State Bar. And not least of all, is a regular column contributor to the Daily Journal. Mr. Balabani, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. Appreciate it. So a couple of your recent columns, and I know you contribute them regularly, but a couple of recent ones have pertained to, to brief writing. Generally speaking, not necessarily in the appellate context, but before we get into your thoughts on best brief writing practices, I think there's a, a worthwhile question to address at the top in terms of who should should do the brief writing and, and perhaps on appeal, who should handle the, the brief writing in consideration of you know, who might have handled the writing in, at the trial court level. And then in addition to who might write the brief on appeal, who should handle the arguments? These are pretty important questions, uh, and I think there's a strong case to be made for having the brief on appeal uh, handled by someone other than the trial uh, lawyer. It's difficult sometimes to make that case with the client. The client will infer perhaps that uh, one is uh, they're getting double billed for work uh, that was already done, or that uh, the lawyer or the law firm have lost confidence in the trial lawyer and therefore bringing in the reserves. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, the appeal is a very different project uh, than the trial. The issues are different. Uh, sometimes there's little or no overlap between the issues on appeal and the issues at trial. The issue on appeal is error and the standard of review and the standard of uh, error that has to be established, none of which really were tendered at trial and may not be issues with which trial counsel are particularly familiar. Uh, so having a someone with with appellate experience, doesn't have to be a full-time appellate lawyer, someone with substantial appellate experience, preferably in the court uh, where the appeal is pending, is enormously valuable as a way of homing in on the issues that are legitimately before the court of appeal, which, as I say, are different in both a number and scope for uh, from the issues that were addressed at trial. Sure. Now, sometimes uh, people think, well, this is a d double expense, but it really isn't because somebody is going to have to do that anyway. Uh, and uh, someone is going to have to read the trial transcript. And by the time the case comes up for trial, particularly uh, in the Ninth Circuit, many months will have passed since the trial. So the chance that the trial lawyer uh, has a very clear recollection of exactly what was said is pretty low. In fact, even if um, the appeal takes case takes place much more uh, more promptly, there's chances are substantial differences between one's recollection of what happened and what appears in the transcript. That's true at depositions and it's true at trial. And having the transcript reviewed by another person uh, is likely to identify both opportunities and problems the lawyer, the trial lawyer, does not re recall. Uh, and a related consideration is that if there was a blind spot, and we all have blind spots uh, when you're handling the case at trial, there's a good chance that someone else looking at it will have their own blind spots, but they'll be different from yours, and they'll have the benefit of uh, what you saw and did at trial, plus the additional insights that may have occurred to them when they prepare the appeal. So it's really not true that there's a substantial additional expense. In fact, there may be little or no additional expense. But the chances of a p appeal that focuses on issues that are properly before the appeal court and are likely to win go up substantially. With regard to the argument itself, we see sometimes uh, a practice which I think is very uh, imprudent, and that is dividing up the argument. This is ostensibly done because different lawyers will have expertise with different part, uh, parts of the case. 
Uh, but more often than not, it's done for ego reasons or to satisfy a division of labor between the firms that are in the case. And it almost always ends badly. On the face of it, it's really kind of insulting to say to a court of appeal judges who have no background in the case and who are expected to master all the issues immediately uh, that the appellant or, or appellee have to bring in um, multiple lawyers to handle different issues because no one of them is competent to handle it all. But more importantly, uh, the division of labor almost always uh, founders at the hearing because the court is not expecting the case to be divided up the way the lawyers have divided it, even if they've given advance notice of their intention to do so, which is pretty rare. Um, and the court is sitting there with questions it wants to ask. Uh, and if it's told, well, you know, Your Honor, that's not my issue, uh, but my colleague, Ms. Smith, here is going to take that up later after you've forgotten it, is really ineffective. And the thing gets hopelessly jumbled. The court is offended. It may or may not get back to the questions it wanted to ask. The division of time between the two counsel does not correlate with the division of time that the court had in mind in terms of the relative importance of the issues. Uh, so it turns out, uh, as I say, almost always to end badly. For better or worse, uh, the court is expecting one lawyer to be able to master the case, just as the lawyers expect each of the judges to be able to master the entire case. It's an interesting perspective because it does seem like it's a relatively common practice to, to divide up sections of a brief to be argued. I've, I've never seen it go well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think it seems like good advice generally not to do things, uh, as you say, for potentially reasons of, of ego. <laughs> but rewind a bit to back when the brief is getting written. So you, you've written a couple of columns now in the last few weeks. The columns are... Uh were mainly addressed to briefs at the trial court level. Sure. Uh, uh, but some of the uh, uh, comments apply to the appeal as well. I, I spent a lot of time in one of the articles uh, lamenting the fact that, that lawyers tend not to make full use, or in some cases any use, of the most valuable bits of real estate in a brief, which is the introduction and the conclusion. And I advocated using the introduction not for a kind of routine recitation of the uh, legal standard applicable to the case or uh, prior proceedings uh, or other formalities, but to lead off uh, with an entertaining, interesting, engrossing story of what the case is all about, uh, presented in a balanced and fair way that doesn't reek too much of advocacy. Uh, advocacy like reweaving is best done uh, when it's invisible, uh, but gets the uh, court's attention and to some extent at least predisposes it towards uh, your position by at least by emphasizing some of the equities that it may be harder to advance in the course of the legal argument. That applies also to appeals, although with somewhat less force, because those equities, uh, those brute realities that the court ought to take into account in deciding who is wearing the white hat and who is wearing the black hat, apply with less force on an appeal. Uh, the job of the appellate courts is not to achieve a just result. The job of the appellate courts is to apply a very limited sense of, set of criteria uh, to proceedings below. And the fact that this produces a result that the uh, public generally would think is unjust or unfair or morally repugnant is really uh, not uh, nearly as relevant at the appellate level as it would be uh, at the trial court. So although I, I would 
still advocate an introduction that positions the court in the case, what happened, who were the parties, uh, why is the result either an acceptable or unacceptable one. One has to go much um, more lightly uh, on the equities than one would at the trial court. The conclusion is a different matter. I so often we see briefs that uh, both at the trial and appellate level that simply contain a rote statement that for the foregoing reasons we should win. It's so common that I thought maybe it was in the rules somewhere, but I, I assure you I read the rules and it's not there. And this is the most valuable place to clear your throat and explain to the court all of the issues, summarize uh, again in a fair, balanced way uh, the key issues that the court has to decide and all the things it has to do to rule against you. Summarized, it's checklist, it's a summary. One can't overemphasize the fact that courts are overworked and do not have nearly enough time to devote to reading the briefs. So the conclusion is the place to sum it all up and say, in order for you, for me to lose, uh, you've got to decide A, B, C, D, and E all against me, and any one of those uh, is enough for me to prevail. That, I think, then leads to a related consideration, which is when you're writing the brief, what's the order of the arguments? For the reason I just stated, you start off with your best argument, because once the court has decided you have to win on some ground, it's going to be a lot less interested in the other issues, and perhaps not interested at all in the issues on which you lose, because you only have to win on one. So devote your time, devote your space uh, to your best argument, um, and then, as I say, um, use it uh, to lead off uh, in your conclusion at the end. It seems like one issue lurking in the background here of maximizing your space is the idea that page limits um, on briefs seem to be more of a thing in recent years. How do how should attorneys regard page limits? Well, I remember when we had no page limits uh, and we would go on for many, many pages. And when they first started to impose uh, limits of 25 or 30 pages, we were outraged. We thought, my God, I can't clear my throat in 20 pages. As it turned out, not only could you clear your throat, but you could clear uh, away a lot of verbiage and a lot of undergrowth, and our briefs got better and better. And frankly, if the limits were even shorter, uh, the briefs would be even better. I try very hard to not use the full page limit. That is a way of demonstrating to the court my confidence in my arguments and the fact that this is not a complicated set of issues. You can rule in my favor very simply. I don't need to take up all this space. Um, and if I can leave a page or two unused, uh, I think that that's a show of strength. On the other hand, uh, what we see a lot of are these briefs uh, where a, part, a party has crammed a 30-page brief into, a 20, into 25 pages with uh, cheating on the margins, uh, uh, putting massive amounts of stuff, uh, substantive material in footnotes and, and other trickery. Um, the fact that you were able to somehow get your brief within 25 pages doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have to read it. And that somebody, whether it's the judge or the clerk, is going to be really annoyed that you, in effect, um, crammed a overlong brief into the within the page limits, which now have to be read. And, and it is not uh, the reaction is not going to be a positive one. Okay, now another recent column dealt with a related issue and that citing case authority in your briefs and maximizing the use of authority. One point you mentioned is that the use of block quotes, perhaps because of page limits, has largely fallen into disuse. Is this change a, a good thing? Is there anything lost in the abandonment of this practice? Well, uh, block quotes uh, 
suffer from one serious defect. They're not read. Uh, so if there's something in a case that is really important, uh, identify it and uh, focus on it. And don't give the court a uh, 20 lines of um, legalese, uh, which, as I say, is un unlikely to be uh, unread. In a word, uh, block quotes are for blockheads. But at the other extreme, and what is now in vogue, and I think this is traceable to some one of the uh, law school uh, handbooks that are put out uh, to control or advise on, on uh, citations. What we see a lot of today are citations of the following kind. There will be a statement of uh, argument or proposition followed by a citation to a case, and then in parentheses written by the advocate, a paraphrase or summary or explication of the case, usually fairly short, just parenthetical. No context or little or no context will be provided. Uh, and the court has to take it on faith that that is an accurate paraphrase of, of the case in its holding. This is very unconvincing, uh, particularly if the other side uh, has cited the same case with a different uh, parenthetical gloss. Sure. Uh, far better is to um, describe the case I, uh, focusing on similarities of either fact or uh, circumstance that would make it particularly convincing to the court, not just uh, that it is authoritative, but that it's right, uh, and that the court uh, should follow it and should be happy about doing so. And, and then, rather than paraphrase the case uh, with counsel's words, pick, extract from it a phrase, sometimes just a word or two, that embody the key point one wants to make and weave those in uh, to your account of the case. The fact that you have you've extracted actual words from the case will be far more convincing uh, than a lawyer's paraphrase and will hopefully focus the court on the issue that is the fulcrum issue in which uh, the case will turn, uh, as well as um, having set the stage for doing that by explaining why the case bears similarity uh, to the case at bar. This is far more effective uh, than, as I say, the current uh, trendy practice of um, parenthetical paraphrases, which excite uh, suspicion and raise doubts rather than uh, carrying any particular conviction. Sure, so perhaps setting a bit more context to give the court reason to believe that it can trust what you're, what you're using as authority there. Exactly. And it, it, almost any case will have a key phrase uh, that you can feature prominently and will become the uh, the capstone of your brief. And in fact, you can even work it into your introduction so that that's the theme of your case. Uh, and then you'll, lo and behold, you have a case that actually uses that, uh, that phrase or those words in a, in a temporal or a factual setting that uh, resembles uh, the case at bar. Okay, now related to parenthetical sites or the, the use of, of string citations, just sort of several parenthetical sites connected, you have some advice in a recent column about the use of string sites, specifically that attorneys might tend to overuse them and that, for one thing, this could be redundant and take up space that could be better maximized, but also that could open up attorneys to certain vulnerabilities. What do you mean by that? Yes. I, I, the only justification for massive string sites is to just demonstrate that the, the question under consideration 
uh, is ubiquitous, that everybody does it, or that it's uh, come up a lot of times. And that is rarely the issue. It's not how often has this been cited, but why should it be followed? Why does this case look like the others? Why is this case controlling? Uh, and so just a series of string sites with parenthetical uh, comment, same, 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 uh, doesn't do anything. The court is disinclined to give any particular weight to that. It's certainly not going to go and read all of those cases, uh, but uh, you can be really reasonably sure that uh, your adversary will. And somewhere in that lengthy string is a case that is not very good. Uh, either because the facts are different or because it's really old or because it comes from a court that doesn't enjoy any particular favor or deference um, or because it has a footnote that you didn't bother to read uh, that says something like except when uh, or is in some other way harmful. And that's the one case uh, that you're going to see featured in the answering brief of the other side. So find one good case that's controlling, that's persuasive, feature that, give the factual context within limits. You don't have to explain uh, who the plaintiff was and uh, where the action took place, but the salient facts that make it uh, both convincing and, and relevant. Uh, maybe if uh, there really is a, a dispute between courts, one, other, one more case uh, to uh, solidify the first, uh, but to go on uh, with four or five cases, uh, all bearing the parenthetical phrase, same, 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 is uh, unpersuasive and could be very dangerous. Sure. Yeah, as you say, it could open you up to some some, some counterattacks by the other side. Uh, you mentioned another area where there, uh, and you've referred to it earlier in, in our conversation, where authority can be placed, and that's in, in footnotes. But you say there's sort of a delicate balance in, as, in terms of how much authority you want to place into the footnote area, right? <laughs> Yes. Now, some judges uh, dislike footnotes so profoundly that they say they don't read them. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, but they certainly read them with less interest uh, than they do the text because uh, you have signaled that they are less important by consigning them to a footnote. Um, one thing that um, we see done a lot that that is, I think, quite counterproductive is the attempt to bury in footnotes adverse authority. Uh, if you do that uh, a couple of times, the court quickly gets the message that that's the place to look for problematic uh, authorities or arguments or difficult facts. Uh, and you uh, lose credibility with the court, um, uh, which is, after all, uh, the most important single criteria in writing a brief. I can't emphasize too much the fact that courts simply do not have the time to read uh, all briefs or perhaps even both briefs or all exhibits to briefs or all authorities cited in briefs. You've spent months or weeks preparing your brief, and the court, under the best of circumstances, has a day or maybe even a few hours or in some very busy courts, matters of minutes with which to try to master all the facts and laws that you set forth. So um, maintaining credibility in a measured, fair way throughout your brief no misrepresentations of fact in law, no stretching of facts, no ham-handed concealment of unfortunate or potentially problematic uh, facts, straightforward, honest advocacy uh, are as important or more important than any 
actual uh, uh, case citation or, or other authority uh, you might have at your disposal. In the end, it is your credibility, uh, both in your brief and at the hearing, uh, which will get as be as important to the outcome as any other consideration. Okay, so we've talked largely about citing authority up till now, but there's another issue of, of, of finding the authority. And you write in, in the column that, that this process has changed a lot in recent years with the improved technology of legal research, where now an attorney can sort of use re, um, research tools like search engines, where as opposed to a generation ago, perhaps attorneys, attorneys would go through books and books and books and, and tons and tons of cases that may not have been exactly relevant. But you say that that trial and error that attorneys had to go through previously might have helped attorneys be sure that the case they ended up finding was the right one and that there could be something lost in, in the process now. Well, I certainly don't want to go back to the old days because I was here <laughs> at that time. And you're, and you're right. We would spend a whole day there going through uh, cases of, uh, using the key numbered system, which was uh, hopeless. Uh, reading masses of cases that could have had no possible relevance to the case at bar. Uh, and I'm delighted that those days are gone. Uh, and I, I certainly don't uh, uh, want, want to spurn the use of the electronic uh, uh, search engines. But there is a, a caution one has to uh, keep in mind. And that is that the electronic uh, search is likely to surface uh, what um, younger lawyers like to call helpful language. Gee, look at the good language I found in this case, um, without going on to read it uh, in its entirety uh, to see whether or not it has a footnote, like I said, that says, um, except when, uh, or the facts are different in ways that uh, not only make it um, not helpful, but perhaps affirmatively uh, harmful. Uh, and that's the risk of the electronic discovery, finding uh, electronic um, uh, reverse searches, finding the good language, uh, which then uh, is uh, sometimes serves in lieu of actually reading the entire case. Find the good language, then read the whole case and make sure it um, is on balance a good case, that it has no um, landmines buried in it. Um, and in fact, you may find that the facts of the case are sufficiently similar to uh, the case at bar that you can actually make uh, even better use of the case uh, than citing the uh, the so-called good language. Uh, maybe one last one. In, in finding cases that may not be incredibly helpful to an attorney's cause or finding you know bad cases that, that array against an attorney's oh. argument, what um, what's the best approach to trying to, to argue around or to handle cases like that that, that are unhelpful to you? Uh, there's really only one uh, proper way of handling them, that is take them on, take them on straightforward. Uh, don't bury them in footnotes, don't misrepresent them. Uh, find some way to demonstrate that they are, for one reason or other, not applicable, either because they're outdated, uh, maybe because they, uh, the facts are such uh, as to require a different outcome or to justify a different outcome. Uh, and when all else fails, um, explain that, uh, that they're just wrong, uh, that they shouldn't be followed, uh, that, that they're, uh, they're internally inconsistent, that they're not well thought through. I have to be very careful about doing that because judges don't like to hear their words like that applied to other judges. It's kind of a uh, 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 rubs them the wrong way, and they are reluctant to do so, even if the case comes from a a court that uh, doesn't uh, enjoy particular respect. Uh, that, that's, uh, that is the last uh, uh, 
tactic to be used. But there's no point pretending the cases aren't there. There's certainly no point concealing them uh, because that will shred your credibility uh, more completely than anything else. Take them on. Sometimes uh, you, you're able by demonstrating factual dissimilarities to turn what seems on its face to be a bad case into a helpful one by focusing on that factual difference, by demonstrating that that is the fact on which the case turned, and then uh, arguing that because the present case lacks that fact and may even uh, uh, exhibit a contrary fact, the apparently problematic or difficult case is really helpful uh, because the rationale of that case would, in the present case, mandate a different result. Uh, in doing that, it can be very powerful. Um, uh, you, you can't obviously make this up if, if the facts don't warrant it. But uh, taking a case uh, which is the other side thinks is a winner for them and uh, having it uh, appear in your brief uh, under a heading uh, that says that this case is uh, the one that really uh, carries the day for you is, um, is something to be, uh, to be sought if you can do so properly. Okay. Well, yeah, another generally applicable tip to take things head on. I think we'll, we'll leave it there, Mr. David Balabanian from Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. Um, really appreciate your time and your tips on, on brief writing strategy. Thanks so much. Thank you. And with that, our program for November 11th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to thank both of my guests one more time. Mr. Benjamin Schatz of Manat, Phelps & Phillips, and Mr. David Balabanian of Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchius. I'd like to thank you also, our listener, for tuning in. I sincerely appreciate it. Don't forget, you can receive an hour of CLE credit for your having listened. I should also thank members of my production staff here, including Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Hannenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have an excellent Veterans and Armistice Day. Mm-hmm.